This is Josh Smith, pastor of Prince Avenue Baptist Church in Bogart, Georgia. Our mission at Prince is simple, leading people to trust and follow Jesus. And it's our hope that this sermon would help accomplish that mission. For more information about our church, visit us at pabc.org. If we haven't met, my name is Jace Thomas. Uh, I work here at Prince as the student pastor, which basically means I get to play a lot of Foursquare uh, and ping pong, but also I look after our middle and high school students and their families and get to minister to them. And it's the funnest job in the world. The other staff members can tell you their jobs are more fun. They're lying. My job's the most fun. Uh, so if you ever want to come get in on a Foursquare game, you can find us up in the loft Sundays and Wednesdays. You're invited. Uh, hey, if you've got a Bible, turn to Genesis 37. Some of you, if you're doing uh, the Old Testament, New Testament reading plan, you might have just come through some of this, so this might be good for you. Uh, but I'm excited about where we're going to be today in Genesis 37. We're talking about Joseph, the dreams the Lord gave him, but I need to give you a warning a little bit uh, because I am the student pastor, and because we have a student event coming up in a few weeks called The Mix, uh, I'm going to promote that a lot today, and, and not just for sign-ups, not just so you can hear me talk about it and so that teenagers can get excited. Uh, I'm here to talk to you about it so we can understand the heart behind it, which I think we'll find in Genesis 37. But if you're wondering what the mix is, let me just kind of give you a little foundation. The mix is uh, a three-day in-town conference uh, for middle and high school students, so that's sixth through 12th grade. Um, and in years past, we probably had 125, 150 students, 40 or 50 leaders that have attended the mix. Uh, but this last year, uh, something special happened last February, uh, about a year before all this started uh, a year ago. Uh, we had 250 students show up for the mix. We had 40 college students that helped lead groups at the mix. We had almost 100 volunteers on top of that that helped make the weekend happen. We had over 20 host homes that hosted students throughout the area. And so the mix was a big deal for us last year because all of a sudden it wasn't just our students coming. It wasn't just students that were super plugged into church. It was uh, Prince students that, that, that attend church on Sundays, but maybe you haven't been in a student ministry before. Like those people came, but it was also people that didn't know anything about church coming because students decided, I'm going to bring people with me. They decided this moment's bigger than just myself, and I'm going to invite other people to come. And so over half the people that came to the mix last year as a student had, had never been before. It was a big moment for our church, big moment for so many teenagers. A lot of students decided to trust and follow Christ. And this year it's going to look a little different. You know, COVID's a thing. We're going to have precautions in place. There's not going to be host homes this year. Like some of that's going to be different, but I'm still expectant that God's going to move. And I think as a church, what we have here is a moment to recognize the potential for God to do something special in our church. And when I say our church, I don't just mean me and the student ministry. I don't just mean other staff members. I don't just mean teenagers. When I say our church, I mean our church, I mean you. So this is an important conversation this morning because it has to do with the next generation and what God can stir up in our, in our church. So in Genesis 37, we have Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abraham. We have his family. They're settled and what we have is something special that takes place with one of his sons. Now, the story spans more than just Genesis 37, and we're going to focus a little bit more on the first 11 verses in Genesis 37. But as we read through this, I'm going to summarize some of the things that take place after Genesis 37 to the end of Genesis, because here's the deal, y'all. It's so important. It, it, everything that happens in these first 11 verses plays out. And I think the Lord has something not just for us in here that our teenagers 
those of us in here that have teenagers, uh, but those of us that don't know what a teenager is, those of us that have never talked to any teenager, if you see one, you just leave the room because you don't know what to do. Like those people in the room, like we're, we're going to understand what God has for us because these moments are so important in Genesis 37. Let me read those first 11 verses to you. It says, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age. And, when, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And, and his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, I have to admit, I've been at fault for a long time and how I've uh, looked at Joseph and tried to understand Joseph. And I've always loved this story about Joseph, but it's really easy when you read these first few verses to go, Joseph, man, little fool of yourself, don't you think? Like, just take it down a notch, you know? Think very highly of yourself, you know? You have these dreams, you know your brothers aren't necessarily fond of you. You have this magical coat on that goes all the way, you know, to the end of your arms and down to your feet. And you're just showing up in that. And you're like, look what dad gave me. Don't I look good? Maybe you do a little twirl. You spin around. You let everybody see it. Like Joseph, chill out, man. Seriously. Like, you know, like they don't like you already. Like you're the favored son. Like there's a chance here. You might be getting the inheritance, even though you're the younger child like this. None of this, the way this is working, it's just stirring up jealousy, animosity, hatred in the family for this one son. And yet Jacob has, or Joseph has these dreams and he says, Hey, hey guys, you want to hear about these dreams I had? I, uh, <laughs> I don't want to brag, but you're all going to bow down to me. What? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, hey, guess what? I had another dream. Check this out. Behold, check this out. Uh, I had another dream where we were all stars, and there was the sun and the moon, and, and that's mom and dad. Like, they bowed down to me too. Pretty awesome, right? <laughs> and so even Jacob, his dad is like, hey, man, let's chill out for a second. Maybe let's just, okay, crazy dreams. You really think we're all going to bow down to you? And so it does something in this family. And so it's so easy to read this and go, well, Joseph's just full of himself. He's just full of himself. He just loves himself a little too much. And maybe there's favor there. And yeah, God gave him a cool dream. But like, hey man, let's think about how cocky we're being right now. The arrogance, let's just take it down a level with the pride. But I don't think this is the right way to read Joseph. Uh, I, I think God is doing something incredible in his life. But I think we need to see everything that takes place after this to really understand what's going on here. Let me just summarize for you what takes place. See, he had these dreams. Sometime after, his brothers are in another area, working the fields, doing their job. Dad says, hey, Joseph, I want you to go check on them. Now, here's another reason why we could look into this and go, yeah, Joseph is just, you know, 
kind of annoying little brother maybe, right? He has the shiny coat. He has all the dreams. And early in those verses that we just read, we learn that he had kind of snitched a little bit on some of his siblings and some of the things that had happened. He brought a bad report of them. So he's a tattletale too, right? So you have all these things. And so now you see Jacob looking at Joseph and say, hey, I want you to go check up on all your older brothers. Now, if you're an older brother, you don't let younger siblings mess with you. You don't let them, you know, tattle on you. That's not how the way things go. That's not the dynamic. You're in charge. You're the older sibling. So we have this annoying little brother who's full of himself, and his dad sends him to go check on his brothers. Well, he goes and checks on his brothers, and in the distance, they see him. And these are men. These are grown men. Jacob's 17. And they think, oh, here comes special little brother. That, 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 that pretty little coat of his, his crazy dreams, the words, his bragging, all this stuff. You know what we should do? We should kill him. And so one of the brothers speaks up. He says, hey, maybe, maybe we shouldn't kill him. Like maybe we shouldn't harm him. But instead, let's just throw him in this pit over here. So Joseph comes along. They throw him in the pit. And they start talking about, hey, what do we, what do, we do with him here? What are we, we going to do? One of the brothers says, hey, let's not hurt him. Let's not harm him. Maybe let's sell him off. Here come some traders. So they sold him off as a servant to these traders. And now Joseph finds himself betrayed by his family. And now he finds himself in servitude to a family, to a, a man named Potiphar. Potiphar was the chief guard. He was the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's guard. Like this is an important person. So it's kind of interesting that now what takes place is, yes, has he been betrayed by his family? Yes, has he put in, been put into a place of servitude? Yes, has everything uh, that he's known and grown up around and the people he knows and loves, like, has that all been taken away from him? Yes. But at least he finds himself in maybe a nicer place, right? And so Joseph works his way up in Potiphar's household. And we're, we're even told in verse 39 that the Lord, in chapter 39, that the Lord was with Joseph and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And so Potiphar recognizes this, and he puts Joseph in charge of the household, which means everything that has to happen to be cared for in the home, like Joseph's the guy in charge. So there's clearly favor, favor with Joseph. But of course, things don't last. Things take a wrong turn, as they did before, even with Joseph's family, because Potiphar's wife recognizes the favor that's with Joseph, the attractiveness that, that Joseph is like. It's not just the shiny coat. There's actually a pretty face here. And she says, hey, let me make you an offer. And Joseph thankfully turns down that offer and he flees. And so Potiphar's wife is upset. She's hurt. She's rejected. So she frames him. She lies. She talks to the rest of the crew. She tells Potiphar exactly what Joseph didn't do, but what she fabricates about what he did. And so Joseph is thrown into prison now. Man, kind of a hard, you know, hard life so far, right? 17 years old, sold into slavery, put in a home. At least you work your way up. You do a good job with your work, but then someone lies about you. It's no fault of your own. And now you're tossed in prison. And so he's in prison, but at least in prison again, it, it tells us in, in, in chapter 39 that the Lord was with Joseph, showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And so once again, we see Joseph kind of rise to the top again. Joseph becomes a person that people look to, that people trust, that they can see the Lord has given him favor. The Lord has blessed him. The Lord is taking care of him. And the funny thing about this prison is because he worked for Potiphar and Potiphar worked for Pharaoh, he gets thrown into this prison where all these people that do wrong in the government get thrown into. And so eventually Pharaoh decides to throw his chief cupbearer and his chief baker into this prison. And who do they get to know? They get to know Joseph. Now it's interesting because once they get into this prison, they both have dreams. And lo and behold, who knows about dreams? Who's the expert on dreams in this prison? Like God has prepared Joseph for this moment. God has prepared Joseph 
for this conversation about dreams. He's been waiting on this his whole life. This is his moment. Hey, dreams, I know about dreams. And so he interprets these dreams for them through the blessing and favor of the Lord. The Lord's gifted him to do this. And he says, hey, one of you, the, the chief cupbearer, you're, you're, you're going to get killed. <laughs> the baker, you're going to make it out. Sorry, dude. But you, when you get out of here, if you could just do me a favor. Sorry again. But if you could, when you get out, can you imagine how awkward that conversation is? When you get out of here, if you can just remember me and, and, and maybe share with Pharaoh, like how I helped you, share with somebody, like get me out of here, please. And so what happens? The, the interpretations become true. The cupbearer is killed, but the baker is released. He's put back into service. And does he remember Joseph? No. Two years go by. Two years. Now, I just want you to think for a moment about where Joseph would be in this situation. 17 years old, betrayed by his own family, barely escaped getting killed by them because uh, one or two of his brothers spoke up and said, hey, maybe we shouldn't have this blood on our hands. Let's at least make some money off of them. He finds himself as a servant in a household and, and he works his way to the top. But even with his work, someone, someone sweeps his legs out from under him and now he's tossed into prison through no fault of his own. And now in prison, maybe he makes a couple friends, some people that could know him and know how God's blessed him and gifted him. And all he asks is just that they would remember him. But two years go by and he's just forgotten. He's forgotten. Now here's why I love this story so much. Because the moment comes where Pharaoh has a dream. And the baker goes, oh, a dream. Hey, I know a guy. Thanks a lot, baker. Where you been, man? The baker Tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh calls on Joseph. Joseph is released. He interprets the dreams for Pharaoh. And he basically starts to tell him about these dreams that he's had. He said, hey, here are my dreams. Can you interpret these for me? Joseph says, hey, basically, there's going to be a famine that rises up. But here's what you need to do. Gives him a plan. Joseph, or Pharaoh says to Joseph, hey, listen, here, here's what we're going to do. You're not a prisoner anymore. You're not a servant. You're not a slave. You're going to get my coat on you. You're going to put my ring on you. We're going to put you on a chariot. We're going to ride you all around town. And everybody's going to know that the only person you answer to is me. So now what started as a 17-year-old on the verge of being murdered by his family is now the second most powerful person probably in the world who only answers to Pharaoh. And now what we have is a 17-year-old who's become a 30-year-old man who's now put in charge of, of saving the kingdom, who's now put in charge of making sure that people are going to have food to eat when the famine comes. Like, this is the one. This is the man. This is the guy with the plan. But he was just a 17-year-old boy at one time that just had a crazy dream from God. Now, here's where I read him wrong. He's not arrogant. He's not full of himself. He's young, and he believes the dream that God gave him. Like, it's that simple. God gave him a dream. And when we say dream, listen, yeah, he dreamed a dream. God gave uh, multiple people dreams, uh, even in the, these few chapters and these stories with the cupbearer and the baker and with Pharaoh. Like God was using dreams in these moments. But even that dream was simply just a vision of what his future could be if he trusted and followed Christ. That was it. It was this picture. He might not have known exactly what was going to play out, exactly what that future was going to be, but he knew God gave him this dream for a reason. Now, why do I think the mix is so important? Yeah, it's fun. I love it. I look forward to it. It's worth all the sleep that I never gained back in my life ever again. It's worth all of it. But more importantly, the dreams that God instills in the hearts of teenagers at the mix the, the vision of the future, of what God could potentially do in their life. And for the first time, 
that's when it takes place for so many teenagers. I mean, we could get into the statistics of it all. We could, we could talk about the amount of people that once they leave church, they never come back. We could talk about how uh, in middle and high school, it's like statistically speaking, the, the most opportune time for a student to, to encounter Christ and decide to trust and follow him. We could talk about all those things, but let me just tell you year after year what I realize about events like the mix, because it's not just the mix, it's events like the mix, where we remove students from their normal routine. We take them away from normal expectations, from normal interactions with the same people, the same family, the same friends, classes, sports, like whatever their normal routine is, we remove them from that and we give them margin for a weekend to say, okay, God, I'm here. We take them for a weekend and we say, okay, for, for three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you're going to hear gospel-centered messages. You're going to have leaders and people praying for you and talking to you and pointing you to Christ. And yeah, we're going to have a great time. We're going to make it as fun as possible. But ultimately what this is about is helping students realize what their future could be with Christ in it. And year after year, this is what happens. I mean, you don't get a 30-year-old Joseph in charge of everything without a 17-year-old Joseph receiving a dream from God about the vision of his future. It doesn't happen. As a church, we have to be in on this. And this is my biggest fear, is that we'll miss the opportunity. We'll miss the moments. Because here's the deal, y'all. We're sitting in here, and some of you, maybe you have a teenager, maybe you have a student, you can say, okay, Jace, I can sign them up. Bingo, great, good. But what about the people in here that you don't have any kids. You don't, if you have a kid, they're not a teenager. You have kids, but they're grown. You don't know what a teenager is. Like there's that whole span of things. What do we do? And, and there's a fear that I have that we're gonna miss the moment like Joseph's family missed the moment. Let, let's look at this again because there's an interaction here that I, I need us to see and I need us to understand. In verse three, of chapter 37, it says, Israel loved Joseph. Israel is just another name for his father, Jacob. It says, now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. He was the son of his old age. He, he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved them more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, now here's the good thing, right? Uh, for just a second, let's pause and realize that, that Jacob loved his son, Joseph. He championed him. He, he believed in him. I mean, he gave him a coat. He, he, knew, he knew that there was something good here. And I, and I think, listen, a lot of times we recognize these things. We go, oh yeah, church is good for kids. <laughs> Events like the next year, they're good. Yeah, we should go. Like we should be a part of it. Like, and maybe there are things that we believe in them. Like we believe in our kids. Like we'll encourage them to go out for the team. We'll encourage them to study hard. We'll tell them they can do anything. They can be anything. All of that stuff. It's the, the code of many colors. He saw that there was something special in him, so he, he affirmed him. He believed in him. That's a good thing. We should affirm. We should encourage. But it says that when Joseph had the dream and he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. But it's the second dream that something interesting happens. It says, then he dreamed another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now, something different takes place here. Before, I love my son. Here's the coat for my son. 
They'll put him on a pedestal. Let's let the other brothers know I favor him. But when God shows up and gives him a dream, gives him a vision of what his future could be if he faithfully seeks after God, all of a sudden now he rebukes him. Hey, listen, there's tension in the household. We need to keep the peace for a second. Everybody just calm down. Joseph, you really think that all your brothers, they're bigger than you. They're all, you think they're all going to be bound down to you? You think you, uh, me, mom, and dad, you think we're going to be bound down to you? He rebukes him. Are you kidding me? Like, this is the moment. We champion so many things in teenagers' lives except for the spiritual moments. And this is what I worry that we're gonna miss. In verse 11, it says his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. See, so listen to this. It's not that dad didn't miss the moment. He, he, he was there. He, he, he didn't miss it. He was good. He, he saw what happened. He knew that maybe God was up to something. But that was an internal thinking. An internal thought, an internal processing that was taking place. His father kept the saying in mind. Maybe he thought to himself, hey, Joseph, you need to chill out, man. <laughs> Your brothers are really mad. You keep this up, they're going to want to kill you or something. Oop. But internally, he's going, man, there's something up with this kid. Like God's doing something. Now, here's, here's my fear. That as a church, as individuals, as family units... Everyone that makes up this place. My fear is that we're going to focus so much of our time being in the business of building walls and not building wells. Let me break that down for you a little bit. My brother had a baby in December. He's three years older than me. It's their first kid. Uh, Macy and I went down there and saw them in December, which was awesome because his name is Miles, which is like, you want your baby to be cool, name him Miles, you know. <laughs> and we went down there and we'd hold him and cook for them and he'd poop and we'd pass him off immediately, you know. But it's just funny, the things, the transitions that start to place, take place when you have a kid, right? Uh, all of a sudden, your home, which was for adults, immediately becomes a death trap, right? And so you need to rubberize, like, all the, the corners and the edges and all the breakable things. You start to remove all that stuff out because, literally, when you have a kid running around, it, your house is so dangerous. It's, like, mind-blowing, right? So, like, new transits, so you build walls. You, you, you build boundaries. You put fences. Like, you protect them because you want to you wanna make sure that they're safe. So you build walls, as they get older, you get in the middle school, high school, you start talking about technology. You got to have boundaries in place. You need to build walls. There are things on the other side. There are things in the world that we need to protect them from. So we, we build walls. We want to keep them safe. And this is the thing we should do. This is the point of being a parent is that you want to put boundaries. You want there to be discipline. Like these are important moments. But if we spend our whole life building walls, putting boundaries in place, what we have to understand is that one day, the next generation will be tall enough to see over the walls. And we can build the walls higher, but one day they're going to be bigger and stronger than us, and they're going to jump it. And if we haven't been in the business of building wells, then they're never coming back. See, all of us have this innate desire to, to seek fulfillment in life. There is this deep yearning for more. And what most people in the world don't realize is that we're yearning for Christ. That's it. He quenches every thirst, every desire that we have. But if we build walls, but in our homes, we never build wells, they'll leave and they'll never come back. Again, we can go into statistics all day, but it's there. The evidence is there. The proof is there. I think about the opportunity his father had in that moment to say, no, 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 y'all don't make fun of him. Listen to him. No, 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 don't laugh at his dreams. Don't be mad at his dreams. Don't be jealous at his dreams because if God is elevating Joseph, then he'll elevate our family. If God's gonna do something in Joseph, it means he's doing something with us. 
We need to listen to this. We need to believe this. We need to pray for this. We need to rally around this. There's a difference between that and just saying, hey, some people don't agree with this, so we're just going to be quiet about it. Hey, we just need to keep the peace. But if we're just keeping the peace, there's probably not peace in reality. But he didn't deal with it. He was passive. Church, I don't want to be a passive church with the next generation. I want to seek opportunities for God to give our young people visions of what their future could be with Christ in mind. And so I think there are some things that we can do as a church. Let me just tell you what I like this is, let me just tell you how much I care about this. Uh, One of the things I I do with this event, I believe so firmly that we need to get every teenager, as many teenagers as possible to come to an event like this because it's life-changing. If God speaks and they listen, it's life-changing. If they get a picture of what God can do in their life, it's life-changing. So for me, uh, a couple weeks before the mix every year, I get our team together, some interns, Stephanie, our student associate, we sit down, we print out a list of every possible teenager in connection with our church, and we call every single one of them. We talk to mom, dad, whoever we need to talk to, grandparents, like, like whoever it is, and we say, hey, listen, we will do anything to make it possible for them to come to this because we believe in it that much. I mean, I will put thousands of dollars into scholarships and I'll look a teenager in the eye and say, hey, listen, I know you're coming, but now who are you bringing with you? And if it means they can't afford it, I'll give you as much money as you need to bring as many people as possible with you because it's worth it. It's worth the life change. We'll do whatever it takes so that a student might just receive a dream from God, that they might receive a vision of what it looks like in their future if they trust and follow Christ. And here's, here's what I'll worry about. I worry so often. I really think this comes back to why teenagers are so responsive to the gospel, why so many people come to know Christ in a younger age. I worry that as adults, as grown people, we get together and and we believe God will do some things, but not that God will do all things. I, I worry that when a kid comes home from a weekend like this and they tell their parents, hey, I feel like God's called me to move overseas. Like God's called me to be a missionary and I want to take steps right now to figure that out. I worry we look them in the eye and go, hey, let's be realistic for a second. Hey, let's be logical about this for a second. Can we just be reasonable with maybe some of that you were away for a weekend, you didn't get a lot of sleep, like you're really tired, you ate some stuff, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, like who knows what's been happening, you're just worn out, let's just sleep on it for a week and then maybe talk about this. Instead of looking at them and say, hey, if you feel like God has given you a vision for your future and it's you overseas, then let's pray about it right now as a family. Hey, let's, let's ask that God would do something with your life and that God would use all of this to accomplish this dream. And maybe that's not what their future looks like. Maybe that's not where they end up. But I'd rather be a church that believes in the dreams that God gives teenagers. I'd rather affirm it. Listen, as a church, we can do this. As as a pastor, I believe it. But here's what it takes. It takes as a church saying, hey, listen, we're going to make our mark here. We're going to know. We know. Listen, here's what I've learned about Prince in two years. This is a generous church. This is an affirming, encouraging, worship-filled church, a joyous church, a missional church. But are we going to stake our claim in town as the church that cares and seeks the next generation, that believes that God will give them a dream and a vision of what their future could be with Christ? Is that going to be us? And here's what I tell you. It doesn't matter if you don't have a teenager. It doesn't matter if you've never talked to a teenager. We just want you to serve. We want you to be a part of it. It could even look like just praying for the weekend, like committing time to pray for the weekend. 
but it takes hundreds of volunteers to do this. Did you know our church, this is how much I believe in this, our church for the mix. So the mix is made up of like 20 to 30 churches all over town. We do stuff with just our church. And then for two sessions this year, we'll meet together in large auditoriums, we'll social distance, all that will happen. But there's thousands of people together from across the city, the next generation. And because I believe in this so much, I volunteered our church last year and this year to say, hey, listen, whatever help you need, hosting at the location where the main sessions are, ushering, checking people in, like whatever it takes, like our church has got it. So I don't just need group leaders that are good with teenagers. <laughs> I don't just need people to help with rec on Saturday. Like, like I need a church that's willing to show up and say, we got this because we know God's gonna do something. And listen to me, if you've never seen something like this before, if the whole idea to you is just so foreign of a room of thousands of teenagers worshiping Jesus, then you're missing out. You're missing out on what God can do. As a church, we have to stake our claim. As a church, we have to be all in. And this is not just student ministry. Listen to me, there's no reason why our preschool should be hurting for volunteers. You might not know anything about kids or babies or any of that kind of stuff, but listen to me, they'll help you figure it out. Because as a church, we need to stake our claim and say, we are about the next generation. There's no reason why we should go without volunteers. It's what we should be about. It should be our heartbeat, our mission to lead people to trust and follow Jesus. And that includes kids, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students. That's what we need to do as a church. But let me just talk to families for a second because I, I worry it's so easy to build walls. It's so easy to be passive. It's so easy to recognize that God's doing something, but we don't know what to say. So we leave it to the pastors and the churches and, and whoever's in their life outside of us to say something and do something about it. But when we get home, we just don't stir the dreams up. I, I worry, we spend so much time, listen, his father rebuked him, but then he kept the saying in mind. And I, I think we're all at fault of this. We're just passive about things. We just let the moments pass by and we don't take action. And I worry that in so many homes in our church, we are building walls as we should, but we're not building wells. We're saying things like, hey, how many times do I have to tell you, get off the device, <laughs> put down the controller, go study. Hey, I asked you to be home at this time. Why didn't you get here at this time? We hammer on those things and we push those things and we need to talk about those things. There needs to be discipline for those things. There needs to be protections in place in those areas. But listen to me, at the end of the day, if we're begging them to get off their phone and we've never begged them to get in their Bible, we're not building wells. They're gonna leave one day and they won't return to Christ. If we're, if we're asking God for praying, for say, God, just show up in my son's life and my daughter's life and my kid's life. Will you just do something in my family? But your kids have never walked in on you and heard you praying those things? Then you're not digging wells. I'll never forget, I had a friend growing up who... Uh, she was going, she was just being rebellious. She was just doing the, I'm 13, I'm 14, I'm a girl. I'm just gonna push back against everything that happens. Sorry, teenage girls, it's what you do sometimes, okay. All the guys are like, uh, you know, you do it too, boys, it's fine. She was causing some trouble. And she heard something. She woke up in the middle of the night and she heard something from their living room. So she kind of crept around the corner, stayed back in the shadows. And what she saw was her dad on his knees at three in the morning, crying out to God, praying for her. That's digging a well. I, I remember I was 11 and my social studies teacher, like I was in middle school. I didn't know anything about myself. I grew up in church, knew some about Jesus, but like was just figuring that stuff out. And, and there, there were some boys that were cutting up and I was like, I want friends, this is fun. I want to laugh at stuff. I like to laugh at stuff. And so we're cutting up, but like there's like the ringleader over here and just a couple of cronies. I'm one of the cronies, right? Well, my social studies teacher says, Jace, meet me in the hallway. And I was like, what? 
that is unfair, you know? I mean, you're like, call that kid out. He's the one causing all the trouble. I'm just giggling a little bit, you know? And, and he, he looks at me. This guy, this guy was like seven feet tall, and I was like down here. So I was like, you know, he's like, look at me. I was like, I'm looking at you. Hey, you're a leader. You're better than this. I get the feeling you believe some of the things I believe, and like, I need you to step it up a little bit because those guys will follow you if you set the example. Go back inside. Okay. <laughs> Rocked my world. I was 11 years old. Why is it now that 19 years later, I'm sitting here going, man, I don't remember anything about social studies. Sorry, social studies teachers, not even really sure what he taught in that class. I don't remember anything about that. I don't remember anything else from sixth grade year, but I remember that tall guy pulling me out of class and saying, you're a leader. God's gonna do something in your life if you just allow him to do it. We need to do this. Parents, church members, families, homes, here when we gather together, like we have the ability we have the resources, but do we have the people that are willing to step up and dig some wells so that the next generation can draw deep? His father kept the saying in mind. See, at the end of all of it, Joseph's number two, and the dreams that God stirred up in his heart and in his life, they weren't just for him. They weren't just for the benefit of Pharaoh and for Pharaoh's court, but for the whole area. See, Joseph was put in charge. Remember, there's that moment where, where Jacob missed it. He rebuked him, but then he remembered the saying. But in those moments, maybe, maybe Jacob could have said, oh, hey, let's rally around, let's pray, let's lift him up, let's do this. Because what we realize is that everything about Joseph's faithfulness in every situation would be for the benefit of his family, and for so many other people. I mean, he saved lives. He was in charge of the storehouse, and when people needed food, they came to Joseph. And the only reason there was food in the storehouse was because of Joseph. And so eventually his family comes looking for food, looking for sustenance, looking for salvation, and lo and behold, who do they find? Joseph. They don't recognize him, but it's Joseph. And some back and forth entails, and he sends him back, and he brings him back, and he you know, holds one of his brothers hostages and there's this whole, there's all these twists and turns. But the end of it, when he makes himself known to his brothers, there's a couple statements I want to share with you. In Genesis 45, he says, and now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here for God sent me before you to preserve life. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Powerful statement. And then in chapter 50, very end of Genesis he says this, but Joseph said to them, do not fear for, for am I in the place, but God meant it for good. For am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Here's what I think about. I don't want to be, I don't ever want to be the person that looks a teenager in the eye. They come home from a weekend or maybe God's done something or stirred something up and they're reading the Bible or praying and they look at me and go, hey, I'm going to drop out of school and I'm joining the ministry. <laughs> it's real easy for me to go, hey, let's just, you know, slow down a little bit, buddy. Like, you know, let's think about this. No, I want to be the person that's like, all right, let's talk about you in ministry. How do we believe in you? Because there's no telling when God gives a student a vision of what their, looks like, what their life looks like, their future looks like, when Christ is in it. There's no telling how many people they're going to impact and how many people they're going to affect. Because Joseph is sitting here staring at his brothers and saying, I have no bitterness towards you. I have no animosity towards you. I've got, the only feeling I have is gratefulness for God, how God has lifted me up so I could lift all of you up. See church, what we realize is that it's not a pain to serve. 
It's not a pain to do things we don't normally do or that don't interact with our normal lives. When we step out in faith, God blesses us. And I think our church has been greatly blessed. This is an amazing church. But I I worry we're going to miss out on so much more if we don't stake our claim on the next generation. So let's be a church. Let's be a church that that digs wells and digs them deep. Let's be a church that does it arms locked, everybody together, every generation, regardless of life stage, regardless of occupation, regardless of, of personality, like whatever it may be, you think, I think I, I would never click with a teenager, but guess what? You can pray for a teenager, you can encourage a teenager, and I can't tell you the reason I'm standing here is because of the countless amount of people, old and young, that took time to affirm me and pour into me. And I think Prince is that kind of church, but we have to be willing to step up and do something. So in a second, I'm going to pray and we're going to worship. And I hope we respond with, with joy-filled hearts. And I hope we respond expectantly and maybe even pray for a minute while we're singing and saying, God, would you do something with the mix this year? Would you do something special? But, but listen to me, none of it matters if you forget it on Monday. None of it matters if you leave this place and you don't do anything. None of it matters if you don't pick up the phone and call every family you know with a teenager and say, hey, God wants to do something in their life. None of it matters if you don't get on your knees tonight and say, God, will you, will you stir our church up? Because I am the church. And I know there might be concerns about health and COVID and safety. We have safety precautions in place, but let me just tell you this, all right? If your kids are going to school and the reason they don't come to an event like the mix is because we're worried that they're going to miss two weeks of school, then we're missing the point completely. I get it. I get it's hard. I get things are not normal. I get it messes with our normal routines, but if God would do something different in their life and change the whole trajectory of who they are and who they become and what God does, not just in their life, but in your life, then it's worth the two weeks. It's worth it every time. Give them a month. (laughs) It's worth it. What are we going to do, church? It matters too much to hear it and then forget it. Let's take our claim. Let me pray. Thanks so much for taking the time to listen to this sermon. May you trust and follow Jesus more and lead others to do the same. For more information, visit us at pabc.org.